Tired of sleepwalking through life on autopilot and ready to step into a fully expressed, authentic, joyful life? Seeking a simple yet effective way to build a healthy spiritual routine that supports you on your own terms? The Awakening Membership makes resources to develop or deepen your spiritual practice portable, affordable, efficient, and fun. Join now for immediate access to Sa's most profound spiritual practices, including guided meditations, transformative coursework, insightful masterclasses, inspiring spiritual talks, monthly live Dharma workshops with Sa, weekly email inspiration, and more. The Awakening can be easily accessed on your desktop or our handy mobile app, so you'll always have the spiritual support you need when you need it. Ready to release your limiting beliefs, harmful mental conditioning, unhealthy habits, and those pesky personal demons once and for all? Join the awakening today via the link in the show notes. Use the code SSS for 10% off as an exclusive Spiritually Sassy Show discount. What's up, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sade Simone. I'm a mystic, an artist, transformational speaker, author, and the creator of the Somatic Activated Healing Method. I'm so excited that you're here and so grateful that you're here. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Listen, if you love this show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and stay in touch with me on Instagram and or TikTok or both. Um, Sade Simone is where you can find me, S-A-H-D-S-I-M-O-N-E. And you may want to check out my website too, sadesimone.com. Listen. Okay, enough about me. Let's talk about, you know, what's really hot right now, honey. And it is the legendary Dr. Gabor Mate. Yes, Dr. Gabor Mate is on the show today, honey. It feels like a dream come true. I'm so honored and so grateful that we're able to make the time to connect. In case you don't know who he is, he's a renowned speaker and a best-selling author, wildly regarded as one of the world's foremost experts in addiction, stress, and childhood development. Dr. Mate has written several best-selling books, including In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and his most recent book, the one we talk about in the podcast, the New York Times bestseller, The Myth of Normal. All of his books are freaking incredible. Get into that. Get into all of them and welcome him to the show. Dr. Gabor Mate. Oh my goodness. What an honor and a joy to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a joy. Listen, first question I want to ask you is who are you right now in this moment? You know, I'm experiencing a, a calmness and a presence at the moment. Um, that's hardly my state all the time. In fact, it hasn't been over the last few weeks. There's been too much happening and I've been too identified with what was going on. But this is my third, I can already tell, uh, very genuine conversation this morning. and. Uh, that brings me into the present. So uh, right now I'm calm and present. That's who I am at the moment. Uh, and very happy to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy that our conversation is creating the cause and conditions for presence. That's, that's a, we'll take that. That's good. You know, oftentimes we don't have people like that in our lives who are conducive for presence. It's more like conducive for stress. Yeah, well... I mean, I know you're writing this book on the importance of community, and and, um, as I made clear in my book, The Myth of Normal, um, it's a myth that we're isolated beings. You know, what what the Los Angeles psychiatrist Daniel Siegel calls the lie of the separate solo self. And so that the fact that we would either 
intimidate others from being present or invite them to be is only a natural neurobiological fact of the interconnectivity of human beings. And so beautiful. And uh, I've had a hard time over the last few weeks um, over an event that was very public that happened. And um, <clears throat> it took me some time to begin to ground myself around it. And um, this morning, as I said, this is the third conversation where I'm actually invited to be myself. So uh, I, now ideally, the Buddha didn't need anybody to make him be in the present. He did that work himself sitting under the tree and, and all his life. I don't think I'm quite at the Buddha stage just yet, you know. So <laughs> maybe you are, but I'm not. Which means that, um, yeah, it's up to me to ground myself in the present. But our relationships, our interactions, really do make a difference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, one may say that the Buddha had Mother Nature to support yeah. him to come into the present moment. You know, we we know through the scripture that he put his hand in the ground as the first gesture after he became yeah. enlightened. So I think this sort of anthropocentristic approach that we have to Buddhism is is a lie. Yeah. We lo Buddhists love nature, right? And yeah. she yeah. helped him get free. Yeah, it's true. And uh, <clears throat> what's also interesting, <clears throat> and this hadn't occurred to me, um, I'm not a practicing Buddhist, I'm not a practicing anything, but I've read the Buddhist literature and a lot of appreciation. It never occurred to me that the Buddha himself was a traumatized child and that his need, and, and, and the story that they tell about him of they try to protect him from death and suffering and illness and old age, and then he goes out and sees an old person, sees a sick person, sees a, a corpse, and that's what sent him on his quest that's a myth. He was a traumatized child. His mother died when he was a week old. And uh, I don't care how beautifully in Buddhist, Buddhist mythology that's presented as a celestial event. In fact, what's it like for a one-week-old baby to lose their mother? And it was the Buddhist psychiatrist uh, Mark Epstein in his book, um, The Trauma of Everyday Life, who pointed that out. And I thought, yeah, why didn't I think of that? So that his life begins with the loss of his mother. So when you talk about mother nature, then bringing him back to himself, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Thanks for naming that. And when, before we got on the record, one thing I, one huge thing I, I sort of uh, missed to tell you, because I was kind of flustered by, by talking to you and feeling like, you know, wow, because there's, you know, people in the, in the healing space that I look up to, it's, these are the celebrities of my world, you know, these are yeah. the people who are, that I celebrate and I look up to, um, you were one of them. And, and I, one thing that escaped my mind to say, which is so uh, unlike me because a, a conversation right before that, I was just talking about this. My mom died just three months ago. So mm -hmm. I'm in the wake of that, of just experienced that and. One thing that I was, um, that became really evident to me, um, it was that she had an ACE score of a nine. Wow. And, and no wonder why she died when she was 60. How old was she? She was 60, yeah. She was 60, well, yeah. And what, are you willing to say what she died of? Cancer. Okay. Then Multiple can, places. Then I can, I don't know if you want me to, but I could kind of tell you about your mother's personality without knowing Please. her at all. Well, she was somebody that served others. She had difficulty saying no to other people's demands. She was probably a very nice person who didn't know how to get angry in a healthy way. She kind of repressed her anger. She wanted these people that if I met them, they'd be extra nice. And um, these traits, as I point out in a couple of my books, including The Myth of Normal, um, they're not traits that anybody's born with. They are responses to early childhood environment, early childhood trauma. And those traits create a lot of stress because what's it like not to say no to other people's demands? You're stressing yourself all the time. That stress has an impact on your physiology. Stress actually triggers genes that promote cancer or turns off genes that defend against cancer. Stress suppresses the immune system. That stress 
your poor mom didn't impose it on herself deliberately, but these were mechanisms that she developed in her traumatizing childhood. And so that the link between childhood trauma, these personality traits of self-suppression, and chronic illness have been so deeply um, documented in the scientific literature. Trouble is, no doctors ever talked to her about it. They probably looked after her physical needs and they did a good job as best they could, but they never said to her, what are you not saying no to that your body's saying no to? They never said to her, what happened to you in your childhood? What stresses are you still carrying that are the impact of your childhood experience? Physicians like me were never trained in asking, in, in engaging in that line of inquiry. And which means that we deal, with, we deal with human beings only as physical beings, but not as the social and psychological and spiritual beings that we are. And that's the inadequacy of modern medicine. For all our um, amazing achievements and accomplishments, we miss the whole picture. And I'm pretty sure if, you, if, if your mother dealt with physicians who were trained like me, nobody ever would have engaged in that conversation with her. No one did. No one did. I mean, it became kind of the journey of me and my sister to kind of um, step in to allow her to name and and express. Um, but it's you know this is something that it's not my story to tell the details because this was my mom's story. But some of yeah. the things that I've started to learn after her death is that she she had a. a like sexual abuse, like sort of in a chronic way with yeah. someone close to her. So yeah. that's when I was like, okay, my God, her ACE score, I, I think the only thing she didn't have is a, is a is someone in her family going to prison, you know, mm. but her mom died by suicide when she was 11. Her dad died with Parkinson's when she was 13. Her brother mm. beat the shit out of her. It's just that layers are ongoing and, and through, you know, your work and my own self-revelations through the Buddhist path, I've come to realize, shit, all this is living inside of me. I got to do something to stop these generational curses. I have to be, you know, a curse breaker, someone to step up and say enough of of recreating these horrific patterns. Yeah. Well, I mean, you already have done that work and uh, you continue to do it. I'm sure it's not complete, but, um, uh, you know, and you began that work lot younger than I was when I began that work and, and, and your mother probably never did that work till close to the end of her life. So yeah, breaking that chain of trauma transmission is is, is the most sacred some of the most sacred work we can do. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking about some of the things that you've noticed that are in your lineage that you notice that it that's like sort of in the influencing you perhaps not anymore today but that has influenced how you um, lineage live in the world. Uh, <clears throat> well um so let's begin with my infancy um mm-hmm. let's before before my infancy i'm conceived in 1943 during the war to jewish parents in budapest i know my mom after my birth and between the birth of my brother and after the birth of my brother had a number of abortions. Now, I did a a workshop once where people become you and at some point somebody becomes me as a fetus and they say to me, I'm not wanted. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I was wanted. Not that it wasn't personal to me. But these were Jewish, a Jewish couple in 1943 in Budapest under a very anti-Semitic regime in the Second World War. It's a hell of a time to bring a child into the world. I'm not sure my parents were ready for it. My mother had severe jaundice during pregnancy, which is, to me, a sign of stress. So my lineage begins with my conception, you know, at least, you know, and then born in January 1944. My father's away in forced labor as a Jew. And uh, two months after I'm born, the Nazis occupy Hungary, and they, within three months, they annihilate half a million Jews, including my grandparents. 
Now, my grandparent was a physician and a writer. Guess what? I become a physician and a writer. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it possible that I'm trying to fill a gap in my, in my mother's heart? Well, I think that's very possible. Not that there aren't legitimate reasons, I mean, conscious, beautiful reasons to become a physician, but I think there's a deep unconscious component to it as well, you know? And so there's a kind of drivenness and having to prove my, the value of my existence, you know? So there's that lineage of, of, of just having to justify my existence, which no human being ought to have to do, but so many people do in this culture. But then there's also a lineage of, uh, of truth-seeking and, and wanting to understand. And um, that also was passed on to me. So you might say it's a combination of suffering and woundedness along with the deep tradition of wanting to know why. So I think that's what showed up in my life. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know... Like you have been a physician, but and you were like helping people with their physiological, sort of biological needs and dealing with the symptoms. When did you kind of have that shift and become someone who's actively looking at the root cause? Like when did you turn your research and your awareness to like the sort of underlying, um, you know, capitalism as a poison, shame as a poison. Like, when did you kind of go? Was it a rock bottom personal for you that was like, oh shit, I got, I got to look at the stuff in a new way? What was the the turning point for you there? Well, so I don't know that there was a single moment or a dramatic turning point. It was a gradual process. Even before I went to medical school, I was interested in a larger picture. You know. I mean, look, as a teenager growing up, as a, Jewish, as a Jewish teenager, once I became aware of the genocide and all these millions of people, I remember days when literally I'd go dizzy thinking about it. Like, why? How was this possible? How was this even possible? So the question of why people suffer and why people make other people suffer has been very alive for me long before I went to medical school, in the larger sense. So that was already with me. Now, as a family physician, I had an advantage over my specialist colleagues. When you go see the specialist, the organ or, or system of the body that's ill has already been identified. So by the time, if I'm a GP and I send you to a respirologist, I already know that your lungs are sick, or your heart, or your intestines, or your nervous system, your immune system, your joints. But I know something that the specialist doesn't know. I know you as a person. I've known you for years. I've got to know you. I've got to know your emotional patterns and how you function in the world. I've got to know your family and your family background. So I have information to put your illness into context, which the specialist does not. And, and after a while, I couldn't help but notice that the people who got sick chronically were very often like your mom the way I described your mom. And they had childhoods with histories because you get to know them, you get to ask questions. So that was the first impetus. The second impetus for that shift of perspective for me, which is a gradual onset, dawning of awareness, you know. Um, it wasn't a lightning bolt, it was more like a dawn that gradually lights up the sky, you know. And uh, secondly, there was my own suffering, my own being in middle age and feeling life is not worth living and um, here I'm a successful doctor and a parent and I feel this potential I haven't begun to tap but I don't know how to and every morning I wake up resenting the world depression in other words so I had to start asking well what's that about that was the second impetus the third impetus which is a surprise to me is that <clears throat> the things I began to notice which is the linkage of people's childhood experiences traumas adult stresses and their illnesses of, of whether mental illness or physical, I wasn't just seeing things. There was a vast body of scientific literature had, that had investigated those links. It's just that nobody makes you aware of that in medical school. Even though this stuff is published in major medical journals and scientific publications, 
it's missing from the medical ideology. But once I discovered that literature, and I put that together with my own observations and my own experience, all of a sudden I had a map to understanding uh, human suffering and human illness and human health. So that's what happened, and it happened over time, and it, I still continue to learn things. I mean, writing my most recent book, I, 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 went to, I collected 25,000 articles, scientific papers, medical journal articles, newspaper reports. So I, I just continue to learn, you know, and, and mm -hmm. but the more I learn, the more a holistic, unified view of human health and illness emerges from the scientific literature and and not to mention my own observations and so my knock on the medical profession my own profession is not that we're too scientific is that we're not scientific enough because if we're scientific we would recognize what any good buddhist could tell you or any indigenous healer could tell you that mind and body are not separable that it's all one that human beings are not disconnected entities that our organs are not separable from our emotional states. You know, all the stuff that's really been part of human wisdom forever, but which modern medicine has completely forgotten, despite all the science. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Wow. And we know this, and and we still, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this show and who follow your work and who are in the healing journey know that you know, it's all connected. And also we still live in a culture that is so, um, it really supports multitasking, really supports distraction, really supports you to like leave your body and, and disconnect yeah. from your body and like not uh, listen to your body at all. And you, you see uh, so many people are just literally caught up in overthinking, overanalyzing, uh, ruminating, dwelling, like efforting their ways out of their problems that are coming into their bodies and touching yeah. base. That sort of somatic awareness is, is gone. Well, when you do your work, uh, the yoga and the movement and dance perhaps, what are you actually teaching people? Come home into their body, to be in their bodies. Yeah. Exactly, no, exactly. Now, have you ever met a one-day-old infant that is not connected to their bodies? No. You never will, unless they're very sick, you know? Um, in other words, that disconnection isn't a part of our nature. It goes contrary to our nature. And it's imposed on us by the culture that we live in. And that, that disconnection from our bodies is, from our true selves, really, um, including our bodies, is the essence of what I call trauma. You know, and so that healing is actually that reconnection. And uh, we do live in a culture that promotes this connection massively. And uh, just a simple thing, like one of the essential needs of a human infant, dictated by nature and evolution, is free, spontaneous play out in nature. Now, how many children in our society get to do that? When you're one year old, they're given an iPad. And it's no longer free, spontaneous, creative play that promotes healthy development of the brain and the personality and the unfolding of the spirit. It's dictated and programmed and designed by somebody very deliberately to get that infant hooked on technology. They call it neuromarketing, they call it. Neuromarketing. They're, they're, targeting, they're targeting your nervous system. <laughs> you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this is conspiracy reality. They actually conspire to get you hooked at age one to technology. Holy shit, yeah. You know, and it's got predictable and demonstrated effects on brain development. So that's just one small example of the toxicity of our culture. That's why the subtitle of my book is Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. This culture is toxic. Uh, in other words, it runs contrary to human needs. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the myth of normal, the title of the book. Like, yeah. what prompted you to, to use such a bold title? It gives it gave me life when I first saw it. I was like, "Thank God, this iconic mystic scientist, doctor, sage is using these words." Because we are living in a, in a society that we are trying to be coherent and be normal, and 
And oh my goodness, when I worked in fashion, I was drinking every night, smoking pot throughout the entire day and doing cocaine on the weekends, maybe yeah. not just on the weekends, maybe a, a couple more times than that. But I was, I, was, I was prolific at pretending to be normal. So the outside world thought I was like successful and happy. And I, I thought I was too, because if people are telling me that I am, then, then shit, I, I better be, right? <laughs> so it was this vicious cycle of like well, trying to fit in. Can I ask you a question? Please. I'm just curious. I mean, I'll answer your question about the myth of normal. Thank you. But I'm just curious because when I read about, uh, like I just read a book review of a book about Carl Lagerfeld. That's probably a name that's known to you. Um, yes. But but the more I read about the fashion world, the more I see that what you've described here is quite common in the fashion world. Now, what is it about the fashion world that um, evokes or either or either attracts those kind of people into it or evokes that kind of behavior in people? Like, what is it? I think it's a lot of insecure people who have found refuge in dressing up as a way to mask their insecurities. I think fashion becomes this gateway to to be godly, to be like a deity, like to be, you know, like these beings who are deemed perfect. So we dress up, we put on the makeup, we do the whole thing. And then all of a sudden, everybody looks at us like the gods in a room, you know? So it's you have that as a way to mask the crumbling that's happening inside. And then later on, once I've started to heal, I now use fashion as an extension of like right. my relaxation, my safety, right. my benevolence, my generosity. So it's different, huh. it's changed, you know? Huh. Um, well, but before so, it was not that. <laughs> no, I get it, thank you. So thanks for that clarification. And one more question, okay? I mean, I, if you don't mind being interviewed here on your own Please, program. Please, oh my goodness. I look at these fashion models. They're, I don't wanna say that they're inhuman, but they're non-human. Their expressions are cold and distant and alienated. And um, their bodies are so atypical of human beings. What is it about that distance and aimless and haughty coldness that, that creates... Why is that? Like, why don't they show normal people with all kinds of normal emotions and vulnerability like what is that about i mean i kind of sh- should throw that question to you because you know about the history of the uh, through a scientific lens more i feel like it's been in the psyche right to like look at people who have a specific body type as as pretty and i i saw some research about like you know cheekbones when they're higher and eyes yeah. are like further apart yeah. that we perceive that to be more beautiful it's like uh-huh. a a neuro like a, a biological thing okay, that okay, the brain so, reads that okay so let me go with the let me go with the let me let go of the body type issue what about those haughty cold alienated distant looks in their eyes in their faces what is that about Really good question. I think it's a, a celebration of of me against the world energy. It's huh. me, I'm so individuated. I'm so separate. I don't need anybody. I'm so this. I think it leads into the culture of like I'm self-made, self-made billionaire, self-made billionaire. We know like no one is self-made. Nothing, you know. No. But I think it it it, it leads it, it breeds this capitalistic, uh, you know, com- um, competitiveness. This, um, you know, okay. I, th- I think that's my view. As you're prompting me, is the first time I'm reflecting on it. So thank you for that. Well, so good. What I'm hearing here is uh, it's, a, it's an image of invulnerability. Yeah. Well, that goes back to your question about the myth of normal. Okay. So, um, by the way, the title, it's, it's interesting because I had a different title for this book and I had a contract for it. And at some point I gave the money back and I said, I can't do it. And then I was sitting in San Francisco having breakfast with my wife at a hotel and all of a sudden the myth of normal came into my head and I said, I got a book now, you know, and that was five years ago now. And, um, but this is after, you know, six, seven years research by that time. So the myth of normal is precisely that the qualities that are considered normal in this culture are actually toxic for human beings. So this sense of in being invulnerable, I'm, a, I'm an individual, separate from everybody else, I don't need anybody, which is the capitalist ethic. It's a myth, it's the toxic myth. The, the myth that we're all competitive and aggressive and against each other, it's a myth. It's not how human beings evolved. It goes contrary to human needs. 
So it's a myth. Um, how you raise children, that children um, need to be, uh, their emotions need to be modulated to, to fit the expectations of adults. That's a myth. The human child needs to be able to experience all their emotions, their grief, their fear, their panic, their anger, their joy, their curiosity. But parents in this society are always told to control their kids' emotions. That's a myth. It interferes with healthy brain development. Um, the <clears throat> belief that women particularly have to take on the emotional needs and stresses of their partners in order to justify their existence. It's a myth. Um, those emotional tasks needs to be shared amongst all genders equally. Um, there's a reason why women have 80% of autoimmune disease, because they're the ones who are more acculturated to suppress themselves in order to serve the needs of others and ignore their own. Um, the myth that we educate children by cramming them full of facts and skills, it's not true. Human children evolve. The human brain development begins before birth. It continues into adulthood. And if you want to promote healthy development, if you're growing a plant in your backyard, you wouldn't say, what am I going to teach this plant? You would ask yourself, what are the conditions that this plant needs to unfold according to its own natural inclinations? So it's not about educating kids by cramming them full of facts. It's about how do we meet the needs for healthy unfoldment and healthy development. And that child who is given those conditions, will naturally want to learn the facts, will naturally want to acquire skills. We don't have to worry about that. We have to worry about is making sure that they're emotionally healthy and that their natural curiosity hasn't been obtunded. So, oh my God, I mean, there's so many myths in this culture, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and each of them we consider them to be normal, and yet they're toxic. Thank you for that. And you know what this propels me to ask? It's your view on the punitive uh, justice system and how punitive we are to people who are not normal. And your view on that, like the restorative justice approach versus the punitive justice approach. And I always say that the punitive, the, the prison industrial complex is not just in the prisons, it's in the psyche. It's indoctrinated, colonized into yeah. all of our minds. We're doing this to our children, we're doing this to our partners. I just, excuse my language, I just fucking did that to my boyfriend yesterday. Yeah. And I was like a couple minutes late to show up to Gabor Mate because I was on the phone with him asking for forgiveness for how Ooh. punitive I was. That's so it. I'm just like, holy shit, why are we, Why? and I teach about forgiveness so much and now, it's, and I still slip up, you know? Well, me too. By the way, that's the best excuse for being lured I've ever heard. So thank you very much. Um, <laughs> um, oh my but, God. I have to be honest with you, you know? <laughs> Everyone, I'm honest. But, you know, with you, I'm like, holy shit, show well, up. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, well, in terms of the, the criminal justice system, it's aptly named. It's a criminal justice system is what it is because it hurts people. And who does it hurt? It's the people that are most traumatized. So if you look at the research literature of who ends up in prison, it's people with multiple childhood adverse experiences, trauma. Then they act out their trauma in ways that society finds unacceptable. Then we punish them rather than try to understand them. Now, this begins early in life. So kids act out. So he's acting out. Now, when I use the phrase acting out, most people think, well, this kid is being oppositional, obstreperous, rude, disobedient. That's not what acting out means. Acting out means portraying in behavior something you don't have the language for. So if you in a game of charades, you're not allowed to speak, are you? What do you have to do? You have to act it out, you know? Now, children, what children act out are their emotional needs and emotional frustrations. Those needs that children have for acceptance and love and support, when they're not met, they're going to be very frustrated. They're going to act it out, sometimes aggressively. Then we punish them for it, rather than 
I'm not saying we should be indulgent and permissive. What I'm saying is that the emotions need to be understood and that child needs to be held. When that happens, they learn how to deal with those emotions in a healthy way. When we punish them for it, they just develop self-loathing and a lifelong resentment. Now, let me tell you about two videos. One is from a Texas death row. This, young, this man is 40 years old now. He's been on death row for 22 years. Because when he was 18, he was a traumatized, of course, black kid. He uh, ends up joining a gang because at least a gang gives you a sense of belonging. A gang is a sangha, isn't it? It's not a mature sangha, but, it's, but we need to belong. So the kid joins the gang, engages in addictions and criminal behavior, kills somebody. He's 18 years old. Now the courts and the jury decides that he's, uh, he deserves not to live. So he's on death row and all these appeals are going on, 22 years now. He sees his friends on death row being strapped into gurneys, taken off to their deaths. He becomes a meditator. He reads my book. He has people talking to him in a compassionate way. And he has a transformation. And he experiences the remorse for what he did. And he ex genuine remorse. And he says, now I love life. Now he lives in a cage on death row. And he loves life. Because he's connected to himself. And so I got this four minute video where he's talking about this. And he teaches other kids online, he's allowed to do this, or not to follow his path. Now the state still wants to kill him for what he did 22 years ago. Now the, there's the great Buddhist story about this mass killer who is um, accosting the Buddha with murderous intent, and the Buddha just looks at him, and this man just melts and becomes Buddha's most docile and uh, avid follower. Now, this man in prison has had that kind of transformation. I wish I could show it to you. If this, this is what's possible, I could show you another video that's going to be on national news in Canada in a few weeks of a 13-year-old indigenous kid. Now, most of the people in the jail in Canada are indigenous. 50% of the, well, a large percentage are, 50% of the women in jail in Canada are indigenous women. They happen to be the most, they have to be, they make up 5% of the population. They happen to be the most traumatized segment of the population. Predictably, they end up in jail. We punish people for, for having traumatized them for centuries, not be punished them for having been traumatized. Now, this video is a 13-year-old indigenous kid in a juvenile detention home in Saskatchewan, Canada. And he kicks the door of his cell and he makes noise. He's no danger to anybody. He's by himself. In come three big guys. They force him into what's called a wrap. The wrap is a California-devised whole-body straitjacket. And this kid is trussed up like an animal, 13 years old. Now, shall I tell you a story? He was sexually abused as a child, abandoned by his parents, street kid, on and on, ends up in juvenile detention, then he's trussed up like an animal for a whole hour, and these adults sit there reading books and talking to each other. This is in today in Canada. This is the, what we call the criminal justice system. Well, it's a criminal system. That was five years ago this video was taken. Five years later, where's that kid? He's in a mental health institution in a prison. What a surprise. So this is our criminal system. Rather than seeking how do we rehabilitate people, how do we restore them to the community, which is what restorative justice is all about? How do we help them recover from their traumatic wounds that landed them in jail in the first place? We just punish the hell out of them, and we keep traumatizing them. That's what we call the yeah. We've done. That's what we call the justice system, and some big for some <sighs> major coincidence. Mm -hmm. Indigenous yeah, and people of color are overrepresented in the jails of the United States, in the jails of Canada, in the jails of every country with the history of colonialism. Oh my God, this, this is 
on some next level. It's like we're criminalizing poverty, we're criminalizing trauma, we're criminalizing, it, it just, it's a culture of like over pathologizing everything and over criminalizing everything. That's, yeah, exactly. wow. That's, exactly. Oh and and part, of, part of my title, The Myth of Normal, is that people's mental health problems or physical health problems, your mother's disease, to give one example, was a normal response to abnormal circumstances. So, yeah, we should do our best to try and heal the pathology, but for God's sakes, let's recognize it in context, you know? And a lot of people's behaviors or mental health conditions are normal responses. Post-traumatic stress disorder is not a disorder. It's a normal response. Why, why, make the, why pathologize the individual? How about pathologizing the army that sent that poor uneducated kid overseas to take part in a, take part in a murderous, unjust war? where he saw his comrades blown up, or where he had to do terrible things to other people. His PTSD is not a disorder. It's a normal, or hers, or theirs. It's a, it's a normal response to abnormal circumstances. So as you say, we criminalize it, we pathologize it, but we don't see the essential humanity of it all. Mm -hmm. Do you cry by the state of the world? Do you go to that place of just like hopelessness sometimes? And hearing you talk about all this, I just remember a poem I wrote when I was in Nepal not too long ago. Just like, I cry every day these days where I just like go to this sort of disorienting place that you went when you're a teenager thinking about the genocide, you know? Well, I have my tears sometimes, but um, first of all, uh, you know, when you're when you're old, when you're one year old and somebody wants to throw you into an oven, um, you kind of get to see what a difficult place this world can be, so not much surprises me anymore, you know? Which doesn't mean it doesn't move me. But I think I've done a lot of my grieving already. Um, but secondly, I don't go to a hopeless place. Well, I may in a certain mood, temporarily. I used to believe for example, that healing is available to everybody but me. This is even after I've done beautiful healing work in the world. But the idea of this, now that's a trauma imprint. I'm past that now. And um, I'm not hopeless, you know. And why am I not hopeless? Because, well, first, I don't, I don't deal in terms of hope. Like hope is wishing for something, for something to happen in the future. I'm interested in what is possible. And when I tell you about that death row inmate, if somebody can achieve transformation and wholeness on a death row in Texas, who am I to lose hope? Who am I to lose the sense of possibility? So I have a deep sense of possibility for human beings. And um, you've been through your own stuff, I've been through my own stuff, and we both know that we've come out with broader, deeper vision, not complete yet, but we certainly understand and see and appreciate a lot more. So I know what's possible, and I've seen that possibility in so many human beings, and I see the possibility in people struggling against very difficult odds, whether it's certain people in the Middle East, or whether it's minorities here in North America, whether it's people who are persecuted or demeaned because of gender identification. Um, but the courage and, 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 and the seeking of support and the community, the, I have a deep sense of what's possible for human beings, all human beings. So, no, I don't go to a place of hopelessness, hopelessness too often. You know, mm -hmm. unless I have a fight with my wife, in which case I get... <laughs> <laughs> in which I get temporarily, oh my God, you know, this life is not worth living, you know. But... These days don't those states don't last much longer much longer anymore and and, I, and and even in that relationship or especially in that relationship there's been so much healing and so much emergence of love over 53 years I don't have a sense of hopelessness I have a deep sense of possibility mm -hmm. when I am Thank you. grounded enough and those days that I'm not yeah I can forget that that's right so it's like remembering to remember that there is 
this amazing potential inside all of us and that no trauma is too big that can't be healed and healing is a possibility for for all people and that's just a natural state that we have to find ourselves the support the sangha the community to kind of help us to, to remember that we have that within ourselves absolutely Thank you. So let's talk about healing. Like, what what do you mean about healing something? Like, I think it's such a ephemeral kind of a term thrown around so often. And it's like, what does that mean to actually heal something? Well, so um, I used to be an English teacher, um, which means I do pay attention to the meaning of words and to the word origins. So now Hungarian... I'm going to teach you a bit of Hungarian, okay? So, because uh, that's my native language, my mother tongue, although I, I'm more fluent in English now, but I can still manage my Hungarian. The word for health is, eges means whole, egeshig means wholeness. So the word in Hungarian for health literally means being whole. In English, the origin of the word heal comes from an Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness. So healing is wholeness. Now, it's not the same as a cure. You can be healed and not be cured, and you can also be cured and not healed. Um, although often the two coincide. Um, a cure is if you come to me with a skin infection and I give you an antibiotic and you get cured. But that doesn't mean you're whole. Um, I'm not against cure, but I just want to make the distinction. So, now if you look at trauma, the essence of trauma is disconnection from the self. We talked about that already, including mm -hmm. from your body. So wholeness or healing means reconnecting, becoming whole again, or at least not becoming whole again, but becoming aware of your wholeness that you lost sight of as a result of your trauma. The deepest traumatic wound is the disconnection from the self. So wholeness means, now, you mentioned addictions. What's the word we use in addiction when somebody gets better? What's the word we use? They do, they what? They recover. They recover. Okay, let's speak English again. What does it mean to recover something? Bring it back. Find it. Call again. it forth. Or yeah, exactly. Find, find it again, yeah. Yeah. Now, what is it that we found? When you ask people who recover and you say, what did you find? They say, I found myself. Mm. And, 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 and uh, so recovery is not the same as if, if you're an alcoholic, if you're drinking, if you stop drinking, that doesn't mean you've recovered. It means you've become, it may become abstinent. And that's a good thing. But sobriety and abstinence are not the same thing. Sobriety means an actual being in the present moment, you know, and, 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 and connected to yourself. That's what sobriety really means. So you can be abstinent without being sober. And so recovery of the self is what I mean by healing. And that's not a one-time event. Um, it's more like a process that happens over time. So wholeness in that sense is more like a destination than a, than a, than a it's more like a process and a journey rather than a place that you, anybody ever arrives at. Now, some people arrive at it, you know, and I think there's degrees of it. But I think what you probably find in your life and I find in mine is that if I look at my life 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I'm much more whole than I used to be. I'm much more aware of who I am and what my emotions are and when I'm reacting to the past rather than being in the present, I'm more whole. That doesn't mean I've arrived. I don't know that I ever will arrive. But it's a process of wholeness, of recovery of the self. That's, that's what I mean by healing. And now, mm -hmm. not surprisingly, given the mind-body unity, that quest for wholeness often results in remission of illness as well. So this is not a theoretical consideration, but it's been studied extensively. And the people that get better, even in the face of significant illness, it's not just a process of cure, it's a process of recovery, of wholeness, of healing. And sometimes they even do it without Western science. I don't want to go into that too much. I do talk about it in the book, but mm -hmm. but that, that's, that, that search for wholeness, that's what I mean by healing. 
So the the process looks like accepting the hurt you've caused in the past, accepting the hurt that was caused to you, exactly. accepting that you have difficult emotions, accept that you have destructive thoughts. Like it's a process of like accepting your all these little aspects of your biography that up until this point you've allowed to be the definition of your biography. Or you haven't or you've rejected. That's right. That's right. Like for example, with your boyfriend yesterday it's great that you've apologized but if you haven't already done it the next step might be is not why did i do this but hmm why did i do this and you did it because something in you was triggered from long ago and 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 you were defending something you were protecting against some wound that maybe you haven't healed yet so so it's not just Parts of it, it, even parts of us that we rejected our before, we need to get compassionate about it. Well, not why did I do this, but hmm, why did I do this? Mm -hmm. Compassionate inquiry, huh? Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Yeah, so it's the integration and touching and 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 realigning with the self. I think one big thing for me in my healing journey was listening to the words of a of a Buddhist nun, Canadian Buddhist nun, Venerable uh, Joan Nissel. Uh, she said, we, are, we have this basic goodness. We're fundamentally good. So touching yeah. base with that kind of started to open me up to realize, oh, wow, my mistakes are not a definition of who I am. I've yeah. turned the guilt into shame and I have allowed the shame to be the view that I enter the world. Therefore, I am deserving of punishment. I am deserving of self-destructive behavior. I am deserving of all that's bad because I am bad. Yeah. So the integration and the, you know, we, we say in, in some some aspects of the Buddhist scripture is like inviting your demons in for tea or for, you know, uh, meeting these parts of yourself that you rejected, shamed and pushed away. Exactly. Well, so the thing about shame is, first of all, it's an impact of trauma because kids are by nature narcissistic, by which I don't mean anything pathological or pejorative. I just mean they think it's all about them. So when stuff happens to them, They'll, 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 um, there's something deeply wrong with me. This is going to be their core belief. And they'll either act out that belief or they'll defend against it by becoming grandiose and aggressive. But mm -hmm. both grandiosity and abject humility are driven by shame, you know? Um, and shame is the ultimate egotism because it thinks it's all about you. But, you know, when it happened, it wasn't about you at all. It was about the dysfunctions of the people around you, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so there is healthy remorse. Healthy remorse says, I did do this. I caused suffering with somebody else. I'm going to own that. Shame is, I'm therefore worthless, which is not healthy remorse. It's a rejection of the self on a very deep level. Mm, beautiful. What do you think for someone who's like stuck in a sort of um, a really uh, place of despair and they're just in that shameful state? Like, what do you think is the first step towards walking the journey of healing? What, what would you offer them? Well, uh, here's the thing. Are they talking to me or listening to me or are they not talking to me and listening to me? Well, they're they're listening to you. <laughs> they're well, talking to you. Well, yes. If they're listening to me, that's because no matter what they think about themselves, they actually believe that A, they deserve help, and B, that help is possible. Otherwise, they wouldn't be listening to me. They'd be off cutting themselves or drinking or working, multitasking their way out of distress. So the fact that they're talking to me or talking to you or listening to us means that whether they think so or not consciously, there's part of them that believes that A, I'm worth it, and B, help is available, and C, transformation is possible. If those conditions, if that awareness wasn't in them, they wouldn't be listening to me or to you. So I'd ask them, okay, what's the part of you that's listening right now? What's the part of you that's reaching out for help? Get in touch with that part. I'd begin with that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. 
Um, oh my goodness. I, I, there's so much that you said. I'm like, okay, I need Gabor for an entire 12 hour podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, <laughs> Listen, I'm not going um, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, question for you, my dear. Have you ever had a mystical experience? Yeah. When you said mystical and you referred to me, you're talking to the wrong guy. Um, the, 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 the closest I've come to mystical experiences has been under the influence of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And and I do talk about that in the book. Um, but I have not. I appreciate and I even fully get on a certain level the value and the truth in mystical experiences. But you could search my conscious memory and I'll tell you I've never had one. Now, my wife has had one. I was there when it happened. And it was amidst intense suffering between us and I was being very hurtful in what I was saying to her and she surrendered to the pain she says this is real this is what's happening I accept the pain and the world became resolved into nothing but pure energy and she saw the perfect goodness of me and of the universe and boundaries disappeared and that was a mystical experience. Now she had that. I've known others who've had it. I've resented the fact that I haven't, you know. And uh, uh, even uh, I have a very thick skull, you know. So even under the, even when I do psychedelic work, um, it's more difficult for me than others to get to those states. And I've glimpsed them, and I've glimpsed them powerfully but only in that context. And um, so that's my answer. Now, also, have I sat in a cave for 30 years? Have I subjected my, there's a friend of mine who does Vipassana meditation and he goes off on his 30-day silent retreats. Well, it's difficult for me to go on a five-minute silent retreat, never mind 30 days. So have I done the work? I haven't. And maybe if I did, who knows? Or maybe by some grace, who knows? But so far, no, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Even though people come to say to me, you're so spiritual. And I say, well, it depends what you mean by that. Because truly, I don't have a, a regular spiritual practice. Um, I drag myself by the scruff of my neck to do 10 minutes of yoga daily before I go to bed. On the other hand, I go swimming, and I swim two kilometers, and for 50 minutes, I deep, I breathe deeply in and out every day. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's what you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, but yes, I hear all of it, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, I think it's a, ling- a wording thing, because I think you being able to put together like six years of research about all the things you've done, that kind of like coming, that, that self-revelation, that meeting truth in a way that you're meeting, those are mystical experiences in my view. I think we want the black Madonna to be at our dining table or the Buddha to be hiding, hiding under our bed or for the boundaries and to dissolve. And I think we, I'm trying to dismystify mystical experience. I'm trying to make okay. it sort of like anytime we have these revelations and we are accepting and, and more, a big change of perspective. I call it a mystical experience. You know, if you can stop seeing yourself as a bad person and see yourself as a good person, I'm like, well done. That's a mystical experience. In my vocabulary, my little corner of the world, that's a, a big plus, you know. Well, it's entirely um, po- it's But I get it. It's entirely possible that I've kind of a, um, idealized and intellectually very narrow view of mystical experience that I think of it as this ineffable being of unity, you know? Now, I can tell you, I haven't had that. Now, um, even though I know that it's true, you know? Now, how do I know that it's true? What, what in me knows that it's true? But I could stake my life that it's true. But I haven't experienced it as such, you know? And um, it's also possible that I'm dismissive of my own experiences, you know? But insofar as my conscious mind is concerned, no, I haven't. You know, and, and what you describe, I see them as insights, as transformations, 
we'd have to talk about why we would call something like mystical to me is beyond the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and well, thank you very much. This has been like such a beautiful conversation. I'm like, oh my goodness, I wish I could like continue to just like ask you questions <laughs> for the rest of the day. Thank you very much for being on the show. Such an honor and a joy, and wow, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you so much, I, I, and I so appreciate it and enjoyed talking with you. I mean, what an epic podcast. Holy shit, I am living for this. It was like coming up to the hour, and I wanted to say more and ask more and reflect more, and it was just like, okay, girl, respect to time. Let him go. This is enough. But the the little part of me is like, no, we need more. I was like, honey, this is enough information for one episode. So there it is. I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode. And please review, subscribe, and rate and share with your friends in your community about the podcast. And uh, don't forget to check out his new book, The Myth of Normal. Go buy it. Write a review, let him know and the world know how this book has uh, touched your life and inspired you. And um, also, if you have questions or feedback or you you want a prayer request or you have a specific, you know, um, uh, healing question you have, um, you can leave me a voice voice note, no, a voicemail, 805-285-2331. Again, that's 805-285. 285-2331 and we'll be sure to be answering all of your questions on there. Um, we are releasing a new episode every Tuesday. I love you very much. Take good care. Bye!